Welcome to another episode of the Wisdom Experience Podcast. I'm Claylo, and I'm here with my lovely co-host in a green shirt today. And she missed her cue. Oh, <laughs> I was busy smiling at that, thinking um, we're actually not videoing this, are we? And no. I'm very bright green shirt and you're in the most resplendent purple and blue shirt so (laughs) it's me i am here (laughs) you are here you're here in body but not (laughs) minds is that right you still still have to sleep for what was going on (laughs) i think i'm still in the previous conversation you know it kind of well it was we we always talk obviously before we start recording and uh my mind was obviously still engaged and, and quite curious really as to to what we could have carried on discussing <laughs> all right okay well cool so here we are we're on uh, another episode which is great it's good to good to see what have you been up to this week of week number nine of lockdown is that right you know, I love the way you asked me that. I'm not actually counting. Um, I'm just loving every every day of it. Um, so this week, as we're recording, it's half term, and I still have school age, college age children, uh, and so I've taken off a three days. My husband also took off three days from work, so we've had a what's it called a staycation where we've kind of hung out at home. Because um, I was curious about that. I was curious because I've known several people say, "Oh yeah, I'm going on holiday this week." And I'm like, well, "Where are you going? <laughs> what do you mean? Where, how is it? How is your house going to look different um, today versus the day before? Because you're on holiday. What's what? What did you do different to make it a holiday? Oh, well, great, great question. Um, for us, it meant that instead of going out for one family walk a week, we went out for probably one every other day. Um, we have more focused quality time together. All right. So and do, do stuff like what? What does focused quality time do? Well, I mean? it might include playing a board game. Um, and I smile. So we've, we're in the middle now of playing Risk, which we played over two days. We only play for an hour at a time because otherwise the family fractions kind of start to, to show. Uh, so playing Risk, but also uh, Pandemic Arrived, which is a board game you recommended oh, to me. Yeah. Something more collaborative. And you're living so, through a pandemic, so you should have all the skills and knowledge to do very well in the game now. Now that now you're living in it. Now, I haven't opened the box yet, and I, I know this isn't necessarily what we're talking about, but I do think it's going to be linked, actually, with kind of rites and, and rituals um, or certainly rites of passage. So tell tell me a little bit about Pandemic because I kind of bought it and then forgot completely. Well, all you need to do is pick up the paper and read the paper. That's Pandemic <laughs> right now. I mean, it's literally that. There's there's five uh, viruses that have sprung out across the world. You and your team have to find a cure for them all to stop it from spreading there's outbreaks which then threaten to overwhelm your countries um, and you only have such a, a limited amount of time. You've had too many outbreaks and your com- countries get overwhelmed and the world dies and you fail. Um, so you can be a scientist. I think you can be an engineer, um, a researcher. So each of these task roles, they have different skill sets that they have to help you guys figure out how you're going to um yeah cure these diseases and you got five of them to do and every turn at the end of every turn 
there's always more, um, the disease spreads more. And if it hits two countries that are adjacent to each other, then you have an outbreak, which then makes it spread even more. So, (laughs) And of course, the key thing worth mentioning before we move on is it's about collaboration. Yes. Cooperation, presumably, as opposed to competition, which um, was one of the key things I was looking for. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a hundred percent collaboration. You guys got to do it together as a team. Um, cause, yeah, because it's you against the game, basically. You're a team against the game, which we had to move to in my household because uh, my daughter is a very, 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 very bad loser, or she was, and she just destroyed the whole of the mood of life whenever things weren't going away in the game. So we stopped playing games altogether. Uh, and then I discovered these collaborative games. There's a zombie one that we play. There's one called Treasure Island and then this pandemic. And in that way, she's not in competition. So her competitive streak doesn't get up against the other us. And then we're able to actually play a game and have a good time. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, that that's what sparked that. But I'm glad I discovered them because they're some pretty neat ones and they're pretty cool as well. So I do dig them. So on to today's episode. I don't know if pandemics and collaborative games have anything to do with what we're talking about today, but that's all right. Um, in some ways, it kind of does if you think about games. Um, but I think we should do a whole episode on play and games. So we'll, we'll swiftly move on to what we're talking about today, which is around um, rites of passages. And particularly on the male side, I think what was I was kind of interested in is how do men know how to be men in the you know yeah anymore? What's the without these rites of passage? And I guess I'll make an argument for why we don't really have them as much. How do we know how to be men, or when that signal hits? Whereas, um, like for women, you have a you know once your period comes, that's a signal from nature that you're now you know, a woman, basically, because you can make babies in that sense, I guess. Um, But we've kind of, from the men's side, the men's side, we've lost that, you know, going, moving away from mom to becoming a significant contributor to the tribe and society. And this is what it means to be a man in this construct type thing. So that's, that's, that's the setup for where we wanted to go. And, and it came out of uh, several, well, when my son was really young, I remember just getting ready for work and I was looking in the mirror and he wanted to play. So we were playing, he was jumping on the bed. And I don't know where the thought kind of came from. And I was just thinking, how, how do we teach our boys how to be men? I mean, because they go to school and schools teach them whatever they do. And you know, there's everybody else contributing to it, but you don't take them off to, into the woods and, you know, then they learn how to be a productive member of the tribe to hunt and do all the things that the men would have been expected to do in the tribe necessarily. And then I came across this book called Stiff, The Portrayal of Modern Men by Susan Faludi. Um, And she has some very interesting things to say. It's a book about men written by a woman, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, I don't know what your initial take is on this idea because you have two boys. So how are you teaching them to be men? 
So yeah, great question. Um, and yes, the original idea for today's podcast came out of obviously a conversation that we had and it, it was we were specifically talking about uh, boys becoming men. But actually in, in kind of doing some research for the episode, um, it, it, it made me stand back a bit further and say, okay, so actually what is what is a rite of passage? Because and maybe it's because we've just been talking about it, but that was very much kind of my thought was, well, actually, from a rite of passage point of view, and I, I couldn't think of anything other than boys becoming to men. Um, and I think that's probably partly to do with my background, but also very much the society that we're set up in. Um, and so I, I then went back and went, okay, well, actually what is a rite of passage and when you start to look at at what that is generally it's taken that it's an event um which may not you know it might be a short event or as in a day or it might be something that takes place over months um or years potentially but it's a rite of passage is an event marking an important stage of change of life so the one we're probably most conscious of is from childhood to adulthood. As you say, from a, a female point of view, you kind of, you get that sign, but actually that in itself is, it's an example of a rite of passage, but it's not an overall rite of passage. It certainly doesn't tell you how to be a woman or be a mother um and then the other two key ones that people think about are marriage so going at, i suppose essentially from being a single person to being in a couple um and then death is also a rite of passage so i found that quite interesting because then it started to make me think okay well there are these actually they are these three big events that happen throughout life and back in the days, in the tri tribal sense, you would have done rites of, there would have been ceremonies and stuff that kind of, and I'm, there are still ceremonies now that mark these significant um, events. So, you know, I think I mentioned to you when we were talking about this episode previously about like one of the things that I got from the military was um, like in the, you know, a distinct rite of passage. We're going to, you come in, we're going to break you down and we're going to rebuild you is essentially the whole idea behind basic training that lasts anywhere from sort of six to, to nine weeks. Um, and you relearn everything. You relearn how to walk, how to talk, how to eat, how to get dressed, um, how, everything. You relearn everything, literally everything you relearn. Um, but you then do it in a group. And there's all the sort of physical and mental challenge to it. So it, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's an extreme amount of pressure and challenge to you physically, mentally, and spiritually as well in that whole aspect. And there's always, the, there's the danger in there and there's the danger that uh, you might fail and succeed and get, not succeed and get rejected. So you're living with that whole of that thing, and as you, and as you watch all these kids that come in from all over, in, in the U.S. in this instance, you know, from all different uh, ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different schooling, you know, education-wise, and you get all this mishmash of 
of boys together and then they go through this process and by the time they're done they're they're huge bonds that have been formed between them um, that sense of brotherhood um, they've gone from being you know some civvy boys to warriors now um they take on it like i've noticed to change them you know my son before he went off to the army you know it's just typical kind of teenager you know gotta tell him ten thousand times to do things and there's not that sense of urgency there's just a now he's a completely different person you know the sense of civ- civic the sense of duty the sense of urgency the sense of care for other people um, the sensitivity for others i mean all of that you know i mean it was there because he would have picked up some from us and other things like that but the, the heightenedness of it is quite sort of profound and his own esteem and confidence is as an individual in himself uh, is higher uh, you know i think that's absolutely vital it's anything that helps develop esteem and, and confidence in who you are just for being who you are um, and i do think we we kind of miss a lot of that today um i know there's been a lot more in terms of education and schools where we do a lot more around um it's called a variety of things but pch pse or pche um and essentially it's about that sort of that personal development um but it's it's not you know how it's not taught uniformly. It's not necessarily taught by people who understand what they're teaching. Um, and, you know, whereas before, I think there's a lot more opportunity. So uh, as we've talked before, you know, I'm um, from a Jewish background. And so, you know, we have bar mitzvahs for boys. Um, and when I was young, we had what was called a bat hail for girls. And actually very few girls went through it. The bar mitzvah is all about learning essentially a piece of the Torah, which is the Bible. So a piece of the Torah that you will then stand up and say your portion of, or that week's portion of in synagogue. And the whole thing about a bar mitzvah is about learning how to go from being a child in the congregation to actually stepping up and playing your part as a man within the congregation. The Bachayil, which I studied, I so I studied for 12 months with a group of girls. So again, very different. Bar mitzvahs, you tend to learn with an elder member of the congregation as a one-to-one, so by yourself. Um, so that would be whatever that conversation would be. The Bachayil that I went through was we were a group of girls. We're still, um, we're not everyday friends but we are still in touch. And funnily enough, through Facebook a couple of years ago, a few of us started to sort of get back in touch with each other. And there is an understanding that we have and a friendship, as you would say, that's that's a bond. And the 12 months was very much about studying the Bible. It was very much about understanding how you take the essence or... um, maybe the morals, maybe some of the the rituals from the Bible and implement those on a day-to-day basis. Because there's there's some, you know, arguments out there that say that separating church and state, which I'm assuming they do here, in the States is separation of church and state. So 
You can't talk about religion and stuff in school. Um, but some are, argue that we, we, even with that, as you just kind of outlined, we've lost um, um, this, the, the, the moral compass setting bit, the morality aspect, the, um, the how to be a decent person in a society, a group of people, that we've lost that cohesiveness in that sense by, um, you know, separating those things out, regardless of, you know, where your, where your thoughts might be on in terms of, you know, a higher power and all that kind of stuff. It was the stories and the, um, the rituals um, in there that helped you to be a part of, um, of a, a congregation or community. I just wanted to read um, a few things out of the Susan Faldi book because what she's kind of laying out is that men are going through um, their their cri- men are in crisis basically. Um, you know, where you know women had their crisis and you guys bonded together, got the whole feminism thing going on, and you know, coming out the back end of that. So you know, but now men are finding themselves. Um, in a place of crises. And a couple of passages out here, this particular one. So, um, as the nation wobbled towards the millennial, the pulse takers seemed to agree that a domestic apocalypse was underway. And I know we're in Britain, but, you know, this is an American book. American manhood was under siege. Newspaper editors, TV pundits, fundamentalist preachers, marketeers, legislators, no matter where they perched on the political spectrum, had a contribution to make to the chronicles of the masculinity crisis. So you had headlines about the trouble with boys, are men necessary, uh, maybe manhood, can manhood recover? Um, so it was like, a, a, you know, is it time for men to pull together? So I had this, was this, this, this sense that men were... Um, having a crisis of it, not sure how to be men anymore. And this big push towards being unisex and metasexual and um, everybody's the same kind of thing, regardless of what gender you were. Um, and then so that you didn't know how to act. But, and then some, and it wasn't to go back to like, you know, not to be like a, a Neanderthal knuckle dragging kind of thing, but it was what is my place? in the community uh, where there's men and there's women and we have this society, what's my place and my role um, in in that space? And I remember when I read that one article about um, are men necessary anymore? And it was off the back of, <laughs> I was seeing, I read an article, basically it was like, well, men are just like tools now. You don't need them anymore. Women don't need them because, you know, I can just get some sperm and we can have a baby without them. So basically they were like an appliance, like an ironing board. <laughs> you could just, you know, you know, that's kind of where this article was kind of going. It's just a, an appliance, basically. And I thought, yeah, you know, I can see that. Um, but at the same time, I always wondered about um, why it seemed to be bad to be different in terms of men and women? Well, exactly, because it isn't, is it? I mean, the whole point, well, so uh, I, 
I, one of the things that we, you know, we should say is that, yes, you're right. Sort of women obviously have gone through um, a collective rite of passage. Mm. So in terms of... Or a collective yeah. struggle, as in you guys were, you know, oppressed, suppressed, but still are, yeah. still, that fight still isn't over, but it's... Exactly, it's, and that's... It's, it's changed from where you were to where you are now. It has, but it's it's still far mm. from over. Mm. Um, and, 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 and I just sort of, you know, think we should probably acknowledge that because, I mean, you know, again, um, equal wages, it, it, you know... Yeah, that still boggles my mind. That, I don't even... Under, that one doesn't even make any sense at all. That doesn't even make any logical sense. I'll give you this just as an aside. So really interestingly, it was something that I'd never actually come across. So in all of my employed history, I uh, was always paid certainly for the, the the roles that I was doing. I was always one of the the sort of the top people being paid for whatever role it was um, and whatever company I worked for, which, you know, I would like to think was down to obviously my capability and not just my capability, but actually my production and what I was doing. The only time that I, and this I found, I still find fascinating. The only time that I wasn't was actually relatively recently when um, I spent some of my week working in a prison as a wellbeing teacher um, and teaching a variety of things, but around kind of stress management and uh, health and wellbeing and independent living skills, which we'll come to because I actually think that is very linked to uh, rites of passage. And I found that actually, not only was I not kind of being paid equally to other people, um, there was a huge discrepancy, I will say, across all of the teachers that were there for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but but I I wasn't, it, and it, it kind of it really surprised me that mm. I, that I wasn't because I had I have a teach training qualification. Um, you know, I basically ticked all the practical boxes and clearly came with a wealth of experience and knowledge, and was a reliable teacher and so on and so forth. And yet, I I was paid less than. Uh, a friend of mine who was male who is very similar in background and you know we kind of I mean you know we had to laugh about it but at the same time I say that actually that's probably a little too flippant but Mm. we're not discussing that in great detail in in this episode Um, but the whole point of what I was trying to say was and that is in um, you know that was working in a prison it was working within education but within a prison and when you think about the social structures around prison and the social side of, um, of of employment, if you like, that I thought said a lot. Um, however, I've now taken us off slightly, so I will bring us back. In terms of the things of rites of passage, there was a, a few things, and, and this I think links with the men being in crises. The idea behind a rite of passage is that it's about preparing the individual for the next stage of life. That's really what we're considering. Yeah. So if it's if we're talking about kind of teenagers, as you said, it, it you know, in indigenous tribes, it might be teaching those boys, because uh, I don't know very much about the female side of things actually, um, but it might be teaching them how to. I don't know, go hunting, take more responsibility. Um, It might also be about taking a period of time for reflection 
and understanding more about themselves as an individual and what they can bring to their community. Um, that I think is vital. And can we, can I ask you this? What is, what is, what are you, what's your view on what a man should be coming for as a woman? What is so, your expectation of a man? It's a great question. Um, so fundamentally, I believe that we're all energy. And I think that we all have masculine energy and feminine energy. And by that, what I mean is a masculine energy might be seen, and it, it's a really gray area, but as more, uh, I want to say aggressive, but not on a day-to-day -day basis. And a feminine energy might be seen as more nurturing and soft, but not on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is the thing. So for me, on the whole, it's about understanding who you are and learning what works for you, how you can be the best expression of yourself that you're but comfortable with. This is the thing that I think is hard, though, because this is, this is what I think the crisis is about. Is it just saying, you know, you got to think of it as an individual in a whole and you got to do, but there's no one to help. There's no guy. Where's the guy? I mean, so if you take the military one, they're not, oh, you got to figure your own way out. There's no, here you 500 people, we're going to teach you everything on how to be a soldier from how to tie your shoes to how to eat and everything. But all of you, um, and actually um, you don't succeed in this game if you try to, be an individual you only succeed in this game if you are help your mate out to your left and to your right and realize that you are a part of this group and this team and that you know you have to do your part in this thing or the machine falls apart so i guess what i'm trying to push from you so i get that that you know if at some point you want to do this but what is it collectively what is it what are you looking for from men you know yeah so bearing in mind that i'm obviously not talking for the whole of the female i'm only asking it from your point of view so what do you look for in it's a, a man i mean do you just say okay well i don't know i don't know what is it how do you know that yeah you know, apart from just the the biology what would you what would your expectation of a of a man be and I guess that's where it's kind of hard to answer because I don't necessarily have an expectation. I have a preference. So, um, and you're absolutely right. Fundamentally, I, like, so, and I, I want to be absolutely clear. Fundamentally, I do not believe that men should be um, minimalized in any way. I genuinely think that it's really important that we allow our men to be men in their fullest sense. So, now so what does that mean exactly? Yeah. yeah. So I think it means that if a man wants to cry, he can cry. And if a man wants to get his point of view across, he can get his point of view across. It means that, and, and you know, we're talking. So do you expect a, him to be a hunter? Do you expect him to be a protector? Do you expect him to be a provider? Do you expect him to... Um, be a leader so set the sort of moral compass for the household do you expect him to be you know do you what 
So so if you had a man that didn't do any of those things, would you be like, okay, yeah, that's my kind of guy? Or do you have... A... That's a great question. No, I, I couldn't be with somebody who can't be those things, but I don't expect him to be those things all the time. Now, obviously, as we talk, I've been married for very close to 20 years. I'm very happily married. Um, so what I... When my husband and I got together, and in fact, funnily enough, obviously we were talking about rites of passage. So when we got married, we chose to have a civil ceremony. Now, we had friends, because obviously a lot of people tend to get married at the same time as their friends. We had friends who were getting married around that time who were, um, let's say, more uh, practicing Christians. So they, part of, of them getting married in church was that they had to go and have some meetings with the vicar. I don't know if there was classes as such, but I imagine there yeah, would be. Yeah, there were. So, right. <laughs> so right. I, I had to go to them in here. I was like, what is this junk? Okay, <laughs> so what? So I'm kind of curious, and I know that we're not getting back to the question, but we yeah. will eventually, obviously. So what was covered in those classes? Well, it was just about the Bible and Jesus and understanding that. I mean, it wasn't like your specific roles. It was just, it was about understanding, you know, the, the sort of Christian faith and what marriage means within the Christian faith. Um, and then there was one that was interesting because every family in there were at odds with this particular pastor because the person posed a question, when your kids go to school and they have to learn these other religions, what are you going to tell them when they come back home? <laughs> so essentially they were trying to push to say that those other religions <laughs> weren't right, that there's only one true religion, which is the Christian one. That's what they were but all of us were like, no, that's not how the game works these days. You know, people can believe whatever they want to believe. And this pastor wasn't having any of it. It was like, well, you know, that's, <laughs> it was all young. Yeah, it was all young couples in there. And we just, you know, times have moved on. It, there's all sorts of faiths. <laughs> but he wasn't having any of it. He was like, no, no, no. So did it, when you say it taught you about, and obviously the, the but, wide range, but the Christian faith within the marriage, did it help you in terms of no it was it was argument or you know how no, how it wasn't that specific i mean it, it was just in the evenings i can't remember it was only just a, a couple of ones i think it was just to i don't know to make sure that you were i don't know you know baptized and all that kind of stuff so that you you know you had a journey within the church and that you were going to be entering into a marriage which in the christian faith and all that kind of the bindings, the legality of that in a sort of religious sense and what that kind of meant. And then there was this kind of delving of, you know, a few. And I don't remember, to be honest, I'd, because cause he lost everything when it was like, what are you going to tell your kids when they come <laughs> home? That's the only specific thing that I can remember from the two or three days or whatever it was that we did this thing was that. Um because he was just adamant that we had to have a plan for how we were going to tell our kids that we didn't even have yet um, that other re religions were, there was only one true religion, basically. He didn't come out right and say to say the other ones are bad, but basically it was to unbrainwash them to let them know that there's only one religion. Um, that was <laughs> but that's all I can really specifically um, remember out of that was because it was just the most ridiculous statement to be making. Um, so, yeah. So, and this is the thing, and, and this is this is where, 
And I guess we get, I mean, we do get stuff from literature and books and movies, you know, there's, so in the absence of the tribal elder men taking the boys off on their hunt or ritual that stuff to teach them the things they need to know, you know, these days we leave it to the TV and the cartoons and the Hollywood and those kind of things to say, here are the characteristics of a man and this is what men should do. So is that where they're learning it from? They're learning it from the, you know, from the things that they read and consume? Sadly, um, I think so. Um, and I, I'm just going to go back to my experience in the prison. So I, I was in there for a couple of years and it was a, a male prison. So I, I learned a lot. My eyes were opened uh, uh, to a very different part of society. And um, in prison, you could almost split the people that were in there kind of into to three groups. You've kind of got the guys who've uh, either been in the wrong place at the, at the wrong time or, you know, they made a silly mistake, that kind of third of people. And then you've got the, the third of people who are just for want of a better term, but out and out criminals. That is their life. That is their focus. They have no interest in in playing any other part in society. Um, and then you've kind of got this sort of middle third, which they're sort of it's it's almost a there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, in that they've kind of fallen into this. It's a way of life. They can earn more money doing that than they can by going and getting what we would term a proper job, i.e. regular paid employment, where you're paying your taxes and your national insurance. And a lot of that has come about. And I, I mean, I had a particularly enlightening conversation with, with a group of guys who, you know, they said to me, look, miss, with the best will in the world, you're never going to understand it because you don't come from our background. On our estate, there were no opportunities and you didn't have the opportunity to get off the estate. And then when one of them kind of explained to me, look, if you look here, you kind of, we live and, and grew up in a, an area where the, you're either one of us, as in a criminal, um, or you're one of them, meaning the prison officers. So you've got prison officers and um, inmates who have come from the same background, the same estate, and all they're doing is they're continuing um kind of the i'm not sure quite what the word is but maybe the the tussles or the um the the behavior you know they, they may not be gangs although obviously there's clearly more and more gangs growing up and i'm sure that's also because we don't have a more uh clearer version of society for people to understand their roles and what they can do and people are just they're trying to make a living they're trying to look after themselves um and they're trying to find their place. And this comes back to what you're saying about men. So, you, you know, you asked me, what is a man for me? Now, obviously, I have a husband. And is he the provider? Yes, in many, many respects. When we got together, you know, the intention was that we would both provide. We were a very... Um, if I say equal couple, but it's it's about equality. So what is it that we need at times? And after I had obviously our first baby, which was a planned conscious choice, you know, I, I wasn't out working. So he then had to provide for all three of us, which is obviously a very typical situation. And did I expect him to do that? Yes, because clearly 
I couldn't. Um, and did he expect to do that? Absolutely. However, do I expect him, you know, did I expect him to provide for me in the years before that? Absolutely not. And do I expect him to provide for me? And what what expectations then did you concede or did he have of you as in that in that dynamic? Tell me a bit more about so I mean, did you take care of the house? Did you then do the cleaning? Did you do the cooking? Or did you or was it okay, well, you go do that, but then everything in the house is gonna be equal. Um, did you divide the labor up basically or um so we did if I say we did what was needed to be done, and actually this is really interesting, Clay, because I'd I've forgotten how we were and bearing in mind that I have spent the last 15 years helping people with their marriages and their parenting as well as their work um, and much more personal sort of self-esteem issues um, it's a good question and I had forgotten so uh, we always found a way whereby we both did what we could do so if something needed to be done it was kind of a who had the capacity at that moment if it was a skill that needed, you know, we needed to learn a skill to do something, then we'd either learn it together or one of us would step in and, and do that. And how conscious were you of, of um, the pressure, like going outside of the castle or the house? You know, there's all the... So I guess where I'm getting at is like there's a, because I was in a similar situation, but there's a, so there's a lot of pressure. So if you take me as this, say I'm going to human being. So all the pressure on me to provide, to step into this role of provider, I have to go out into, I used to call it, you know, you step out of the castle and across the moat, then I've got to go and deal with all the dragons and demons out in the world. And all day long, you're, you know, you're battling out there. Then you come home. And one of the things that used to, that was hard for me in, a, in our adjustment was, um, I think there were still expectations for me to, to make decisions and things when I got home. And I used to think, well, you know, I don't mind, don't care what we eat, don't care what we go, don't care what we do, because I've been making decisions and things all day. Once I came home, I didn't want to be making decisions. I didn't want to, um, you know, do stuff like that. Um I actually didn't want to come home and, and necessarily have to, you know, then also do domestic duties as well. It's like, okay, well, I've been out. don't want to also then come back here. But there's almost the expectation that actually, you know, you still have to do, everything has to be equally and divided on the inside. And it's thinking, okay, well, where does the balance come in that then? If I'm out slaying dragons all day, then I got to come home and be a domesticated primate as well. Does that not put me out of balance? And I guess that's down to the individual. So it would depend, were you coming home and expecting your wife to do no, all so of it? No, so I never had any expectations on in the, on that end. So I would, personally wouldn't care if nothing was done because that, again, from my own mindset, I didn't have any expectations. Say, so, well, this is your role, you got to do this. But equally... Don't expect me to do it if I don't want to do it when I come home. But I and cannot, but but you have the option to not do it because it's not going to mean anything if you don't. 
But if I opted not to fulfill my role as provider and go out and work, there's consequences. So there's more stress on me. I have to do or we don't eat. You don't have to do, and it won't mean anything other than maybe we got a dirty house or whatever, or we have to eat takeaway. So my pressure was uh, one that I can't, there's bigger consequences for me not doing my end of the bargain or my end of the deal than if she didn't do her end of, which was no end of the deal, but didn't do that piece. So I would say there's different consequences Again, it would depend on what so is she different, doing. Different as in? So different as in, so you were out working, which very simply means bringing in the money, which pays for the roof over your head uh, and the food on the table and the clothes you stand up in. If I say, so what was she doing? Was she working or was she looking after the, the No, no she, was, she was 100% looking after the kids, which is great, which, uh, you know, again, it was... You know, not everybody have that luxury where, you know, a parent could be home watching their kids, helping to educate them, ritualize them, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. be there. Take, you know, so you know, some kids don't get that luxury of in their formative years to have, you know, mom at home. So that was good. Or a parent at home right. um, yeah. who is dedicated to them, and I and I say that because actually I think that's really really important. Um, so I think it depends on and and it <laughs> you know obviously we're talking about a long time ago now but how she was spending her time if she was sitting on the sofa watching daytime tv for you know well hours a day then then no that there's an issue with that but if you know kind of her or one half of the the relationship is full and the time is full of taking the children to school, doing the washing, doing the cleaning, preparing the meals, you know, whatever that happens to be, going and picking the children up on school, being on time. Um, and I mentioned that just because it's it's incredible how so much time is focused around the school run. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's, it, but it's important it, it, because that, yeah. I will just say, that is what helps build self-esteem for children. Mm. You know, the poor child who's always waiting for its parent um, and, you know, and there's no reason for, you know, if, if the parent says, you know, look, I, I work until four o'clock, I can't pick it till half four, then that child is aware of that. But the parent who is supposed to be there at four o'clock but doesn't turn up until, you know, quarter past, 20 past, then actually that's, you know, that that's a, a very damaging impact on the child. Well, now I'll have to, because I was <laughs> that kid. But what it taught me was independence. So which which one were you? As I was the kid where the parents wouldn't shut up. <laughs> you know, they're but, supposed to pick me up. Yeah. But it would be, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to the point where, you know, other parents would be like, do you sure you want me to give you your eye home? I was like, no, no, they'll come. You know, and I'm just sat there waiting. Um, eventually, I just said, okay, well, I have to be my own person <laughs> and and it was miles I would just walk then but I mean it was it wasn't a short walk it wasn't like across the street um so it taught again it was a it was a for me it became all right well I'm not going to rely on anybody I rely on myself I'm here I'll get myself home so you know go do whatever the hell you were going to do it'd be nice if I didn't have to walk five six seven miles <laughs> to get back home um but you know, 
I'm not going to sit here and wait at the same token. That's what it taught me. <laughs> Which is fantastic. And yeah. actually, you know, that that's... Uh, I can't think of the phrase. I want to say truth <laughs> over adversity, which is not the phrase I'm looking for at all. Um, but that's, you know, you you made something positive out of that. And I mean, I'm such a strong believer in, in being independent um, that anything that grows independence just about, and I kind of, I say that because now I'm very aware that then actually, of course, a marriage is about two independent people coming together, hopefully a healthy marriage in my view and becoming interdependent, which is, course a great Stephen Covey phrase yeah because I I think always for me on it is it same but different and that's both male and female I think whether it's in the the marriage or you know just the dynamic between male and female there's no better same but different exactly you know you know men we just you know strength wise we're built differently yes there are the anomalies of a woman that's just as strong as a, a, a strong guy but that's not the norm um, you know, just, just like physiologically, we're just made differently. Um, so there was, you know, there's different expectations of what nature has for you in those particular, you know, the role of male and female. Nature has a has its intention, and that's another thing that I guess I find fascinating is that we sometimes, I guess, think we're like. I don't know what we think we are, but we forget that we are animals um, and that nature is probably smarter than we are, but we think that we're smarter than nature. So there is a way that we were designed and built or, you know, and and that uh, and it's a natural thing. Um, but we tend to forget that, I think, in some way. So picking back up on this idea of who's who's teaching the men or boys or to be men and it's these um one of the things that susan points out in her book is you know there was a generation uh of men that went off to fight in world war ii and those guys and they did and and they conquered the world and they were handed over to their kids a, a secure world here you go um but the experience that they had in that, they didn't necessarily, it was almost like, okay, we got out and we conquered the world for you here. So now you, all the kids could be spoiled because you don't need to go do any of that kind of thing. And they didn't share their experiences with their sons and, 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 and the like. Um, and the, the boys picked the stuff up from Sergeant Rock and all these other sort of, you know, if you can remember in those days, all the different various war-themed TV programs, there's John Wayne and those kind of guys. So they picked up their characteristics from that. And one of those characteristics or or a dominating characteristics was this idea of, you know, the individual male ruggedness, but he's in control of his environment. He can master his environment. And where the crisis is, where she's going, where the crisis come is where, you know, you line up, back up the equality, men and women in the sort of workplace and that kind of thing. Um, and if you remember back in the sort of early 90s and all the downsizing and things like that, but basically what she's saying, suddenly men found that they weren't in control of their world. They've been told how to be men by women. So I can't act like this, can't do this. 
Um, their jobs were insecure. It was no longer jobs for life. So they didn't have mastery of that environment because of this, you know, you know, you have to be this, this rugged, you know, take on anything kind of person. Um, they were afraid to admit to people that they were not in control because that was looked down on that you're not in control or of your environment, master of your destiny. Um, so they had no outlet. I can't admit it, so I have no help that way. Um, all these forces around me are out of my control, so and they felt powerless. Um, so the pressure of feeling powerless but being expected to have power is part of what she's arguing is part of that, that downward spiral for men because it was just a, you're in the rock in the hard place. Don't have power because, you know, companies getting rid of you after seven years versus you working at a job for 30 years. Um, you, yeah, you just didn't have the, that mastery but the expectation. And she said the disconnect came in a, a previous generation. The male model was to be while maybe being, you know, like she, she mentions Daniel Boone, for instance, and the frontiersman, it wasn't, it was to be rugged individual, but rugged individual for the good of the community. So I'll go out, conquer this piece of land, but I wasn't doing it out of a selfish thing or power. It was so that I could make a way to bring, you know, the wife, the kids, and the rest of the community into a safe space. So the role of the male being to make a space for, the community, a secure place for the community. Um, take that away, then what is the role of the male in a society? Or, or and what are we? What are we? What are we telling our guys? Uh, um, and we haven't talked about women yet um, in that sense, but it's just making me think of the whole sort of Cinderella complex. <laughs> you know, the whole, um, you know, gonna meet your. Prince Charming, get married, live happily ever after. And they have that kind of, you know, that's in all the storybooks. That's the, you know, the mythology that they consume growing up. Um, and then the world isn't quite necessarily like that. So what are the, what are the mythologies that we are, what is the actual prevailing mythologies that we have and what's the, correct or best mythology that we should be passing on to both our boys and our girls now, that was so, a big question but <laughs> that is a huge question and i'm not sure we can ever say what's actually correct of course but, um well in lieu of nothing yeah. you can, there isn't an absolute but to yeah. leave it to you know which is you know when you were saying about is the individual without any guidance then you just got chaos so at least give me some, what's the myths that we're giving them to get them started so that they have a fighting chance? And I, I think that's that's the key thing is actually, I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people uh, are passing on an understanding um, which actually they're not, they're not even aware of. You know, people just function, you, you sort of, you just go through days and... And kind of hope you're doing the right thing and getting through the day. It, it's, you know, it's rarer for parents or people to be consciously thinking about how they are behaving and, and the impact that's having on their children for them to grow up. Um, 
albeit I do think there is kind of almost a groundswell of more conscious parenting or conscious living. Uh, and I say that kind of where, with consciousness in its, its broader sense. You mentioned, obviously, about um, the generation of guys that fought in World War II, and obviously, predominantly, it was then, you know, the, the men in the army. And, um, and, and not just the army, of course, the, the Navy and RAF and whatever the equivalent is in the States. I think, you know, men came back from war and obviously there was a, a variety of things that happened. Um, but certainly my own experience. So my grandfather was in the army um, in World War II. And, you know, he will talk about some stuff um, that happened, but a lot of it, he is just far too emotional. Uh, and actually, that sounds wrong. I don't mean he's far too emotional. I mean, he's far too emotional to talk about it, as in the emotion inside him overtakes him and he physically can't speak because he is in tears. And he's always been like that as, as far as I can remember. And, you know, bearing in mind, I'm now 50, he's now a hundred. So even, I mean, even now he can't talk about it because it traumatized him so much. So, you know, we had people like him coming back from, from the war and, kind of finding their own way in this world at the same time we had the you know the women who were back home who may not have worked before but were put to work in factories and uh you know doing the jobs sort of back home so that whilst the men were out at war and then it was a case of well the women like the independence and being out and doing a job and it was about how do we find a way for this to mesh together appropriately um, and I still think we're, you know, we're ironing that out even now. So, so you've kind of got all of that, those, those background things going on. Um, there's, there's a couple of other things, obviously you mentioned about the Cinderella complex and yeah, when I grew up, I would read the stories and a lot of the traditional, you know, stories that, that we would read, um, in classics, you know, even stuff like by Jane Austen, who, it was very much a case of trying to to, to 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 make a way that a woman could be independent in a time when she really wasn't supposed to be because she was either her father's or her husband's. But we'd study those books at school, particularly if you did English literature kind of post-16. And, um, and even though we were trying to learn and understand the nuances it's very hard to get your head around, actually, what does this mean? And fundamentally, you kind of do sometimes revert to the Cinderella complex of, gosh, I wish somebody would just get me out of this situation. Then one of my favorite films um, was Pretty Woman, still is, to be honest. I could watch it all day, every day. That in Greece, I could watch and oh, I love both of them. And in Pretty Woman, you know, she was trying to make something, the lead character played by Julie Roberts was trying to make something of herself. Um, and she meets a very wealthy businessman. And it, a lot of their conversation is about how do we find equality in this relationship? They're from two very different backgrounds. 
Um, and at the end of it, he overcomes his fear of heights and cli- climbs up the, the fire escape Spoilers. on the building. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, if people haven't of our age and they're listening to this, haven't seen Pretty Woman by now, I think we're right. <laughs> um, and she says, and, you know, sort of he, so he gets over this fear of heights. He climbs all the way up. He's got a bunch of flowers. And she, you know, he kind of, he is terrified. And he clings to her. He says, so what happens after he rescues her? And Julia Roberts turns around and says, she rescues him right back. And that, to me, is about how we should be supporting each other, whether it's through a formal rite of passage. It's not about being the rescuer or the rescued. It's about finding a role where you can work together. And it's almost like the Eastern thing, isn't it? The yin and the yang. But, but, mm-hmm. but there's, again, there's a push on some instances to say, well, no, there is no yin and yang. It's just all one. And let's just disregard any gender, anything. I mean, it's just all one. But it's like, you know, I think there's men, there's male and female for a reason in society. And why can't we find that balance that makes it yin and yang? I think that's a perfect symbol, the yin and yang one. I mean, it makes a perfect circle. Um, Neither energy is better than the other energy. It's a different energy. And in fact, you need the other part of that to make the whole of 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 who we are um and can we refine our balance um of what that means because there's a lot of competing again competing um mythologies that say well no here's a you know role of men which is no role or everybody's role is the same there's no you know yeah it doesn't matter everybody's role is the same um and and then and try and make it a unisex world when in fact you have the two sexes and even we're getting even more crazy now and i don't want to get into the whole you know i want to have no gender because you know the whole them they thing and all of that because in my head i'm thinking okay well this is again this is one of those in that scenario it's like we are smarter than nature. I mean, nature is nature, and nature, there is a thing called a male, and there's a thing called a female, and they got different body parts. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not making it up. It's not. It's not me making this up. That's just the fact of life. Um, and there's a difference in there. And there's a difference for a reason. And have we forgotten that reason? Um, have we not evolved with the reason to enhance it? as opposed to try and just make it unisex, you know, I don't know. And then I see some women who still, who, who recognizes what, um, what power women do have and they use it effectively, which is good. Um, And where was I going with that? I don't know where I'm going with that. Well, I guess where I'm going with that is to say that if we can remember who we are, both male and females, can we not have something that's stronger versus trying to um, bring everything down to where it's a, a unisex world? Not a... 
and I agree because I'm not I don't think unisex is is a kind of a great descriptor but it it's about finding opportunities for everybody isn't it it's about understanding that everybody has their place and I can't remember if this was on a podcast or a conversation that I'd had recently um so Belbin Belbin's uh, what's Belbin's models uh Belbin uh, yeah. where we've got the shaper and the yeah, chair yeah. the completer finisher and so um you see really we've moved away from this very simplistic you know men are masculine and go out and hunter gatherers um and of course and there's more things coming out now that says that actually they weren't necessarily hunter gatherers in those days but anyhow um and and females being sort of you know home and nurturing and all the rest of it um it's about we've all got these we, we've got a variety of abilities most of us could play a variety of roles so going back to what you were saying you were going out you were making the decisions all day you were striking out there when you came home you didn't want to have to make any decisions now if your wife has the energy to balance that out and make whatever decisions need to be needed or take what action ever needs to be you know taken at that point fantastic if not it's about finding a way so that the decisions get made at a time when you've both got the focus or the energy to do that. Um, but that's not about making things unisex. It's about understanding that we bring different things to different parts of our lives at different times. So it's about actually becoming more aware of yourself as a human being and helping your children so going back to rites of passage helping your children do that also so that they can make conscious decisions so let me ask you this and this whole ego thing in an office there's only a certain dress for men basically but women yeah. have a lot more variety to do and in the summertime they can wear sandals or open-toed shoes but a guy can't wear sandals <laughs> so how does that happen or they can wear a sundress with you know it's right, nice and right. cool <laughs> so now uh, what obviously because we're not recording this visually uh yet people didn't see my reaction to you saying about women wearing sandals in the office so i like <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of laughing at myself because I'm I'm literally going oh no like I would never wear any open-toed shoe um, or sandal in the office just it's just a no-go now that could be because kind of my first permanent um, employment was working on the shop floor of a supermarket well it wasn't on the shop floor it was in in, the, in a store so whether it's in the warehouse or out front and the point is you never wore open-toed shoes because if anything drops on it, you know, yeah. like to get damaged. Um, it, so it could be that. But again, but you're right. But see, this leads on to another thing about, you know, the clothes that we wear and, and how do they express your personality or do they shield others or do they shield your personality, I suppose. But, but coming back to what you were saying, so in terms of, you're right i mean in a in a so if i wore this shirt to work it would be unacceptable eyebrows raised i would it would be you know i wouldn't make it to two steps 
<laughs> but if you but wore I, this, you would be okay. If absolutely. you wore something this kind of bright thing and the like, which I find, I, I do find it fascinating. I find it fascinating from a number of reasons. One, because we, again, we say, okay, well, there's this equality, but kind of, but not necessarily, uh, or we're all the same. Um, but we still have these various different mythologies that still are ingrained. So, again, um, yeah, I mean, and that's just a simple one. So I guess the question is, is kind of, it's a try it and see. Now, obviously, we're in a slightly more precarious situation in that if we turn up as external consultants and we are not dressed appropriately, then it's very easy for a company to say, you know what, you don't fit in with what we want here. Thank you very much. Off you go. Um, Again, for employees, it really depends, you know, what is the dress code and why is that? Yeah, why is it? And I've seen one, I've seen instances where, and like, I don't care what women wear, but you know, there's some stuff that doesn't seem like it should be in an office. I agree. Um, I mean, I, I'm still... But they wear I, it, and but no one will say anything out of fear. So how do you know that no one will say anything? And because how they're all talking it? about it, but nobody's saying anything to the person or correcting it. I've no. had a, I have been in places where, you know, a couple of brave souls is like, oh, that's unacceptable, and then, you know, made the, you know, the individual go home and get changed. But it's more often than not, everyone just talks about it, but no one addresses it. Even though there's a clear dress code and the, you know, the HR policies and things like like that. But that's a, I mean, that's just one again, just one of these. Um, it's the nuances of 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 the sort of gender thing where we have it and we don't have it, but we want to keep some things, but we don't want to have other things um and it makes it confusing i guess is where i'm getting at in the end it makes it very confusing and so coming back full circle on this is and then what are some you know mythologies and i use that word deliberately because one of the things i think that we lose or lack um is we don't have very you know we we don't rely on our mythologies in the same way as we would have done previously. Absolutely. Um, and they're there for a reason, mm. um, but we don't have them. Well, they're there, but they're not overtly saying, here's this, you know, if I'm going to you know, just take the Odyssey, everybody's going to read the Odyssey and you're going to learn it because in that Odyssey, this is a Greek um, tome, the Iliad and Odyssey, but it had lessons for how to, you know, be a man or a Greek and that's not, you know, you could read it and it has these life lessons for you. The same with the Bible. I mean, that's one of the criticisms of, you know, you take that out of the school system, then, you know, you don't have uh, a standard to bring everybody to because we move to the place. Well, no, there's everything and everything's acceptable. I mean, one thing, you know, so we can't, so let's have nothing because mm-hmm. we can't pick one thing. So now we've got confused, confusion um and yeah we said i think out of that confusion we have more problems 
Um, right, because what we're not giving people uh, or children particularly is the skills to navigate that confusion or that plethora of information. So there, you know, you think about social media and the stuff that gets put onto social media, which is not factually correct, can't be backed up. Um, but because it's out there, people will believe it. And so I, I think that actually we have a, a responsibility, as I certainly think all media has a responsibility, whether it's um, traditional media or social media, I think there is a responsibility that needs to be taken with that. And on the other side, I think that we also need to be teaching um, our youth how to critically question and i don't mean to be critical no i was going to say because one of the skills that we need is critical reasoning exactly which we don't necessarily get taught now going back to so we're saying about mythologies um and i was thinking about this from a, a rites of passage really kind of point of view so because i was curious so my children have gone to they, they went to a, a village primary school which was christian um because there was nothing else actually available in our locality and also because of a variety of other things. Um, that was the school that was right for them. And so we kind of had to, to, to balance this because actually, you know, the children were coming home uh, learning things about Christianity that were not necessarily in line with our values as a family. And so that's a balance in itself. So, so you, way 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 at the beginning of the podcast you were asking about what have I done kind of specifically as it were and there's a few key things but making sure that I'm having conversations with my children hopefully being open enough to hear what they're bringing back from school and then if I say discussing that with them it's not always as strong as a discussion but just allowing them to have their points of view and to to explore what they've been taught, whether that's from me or my husband, our families, or from school or scouts or wherever it is that they have been. The, the, the other thing that links with that is, of course, anybody who is in school, and I say that because sadly there are some children who are not within the education system, um, but because I, I've been sort of pondering this for a while, you know, how do we make sure that we have this development this sharing of almost like a shared cultural history and how do we teach children to question and to move forward and then my eldest started to do GCSEs and in English literature they obviously study a variety of things and one of the books that they studied the name is now going to escape me completely I can't believe it because I have now seen this about three times Oh, that's really going to... Um, What's the story? It's just after the war, um, but which war is anybody's guess? And the father is... Oh, it's an inspector calls. Thank you. So sorry about that. <laughs> that's what happens. But it's so do you know the story an inspector calls? No. Okay, so broadly what it's about is it's after the war a family who have made good by essentially running a factory I think it is um, have done very well for themselves and the children the daughter is about to be married to a wealthy and possibly aristocratic uh, match which is great for the family um, and 
there is an awareness that she might be kind of marrying above her station, but all of that. And meanwhile, there is a girl that has died, and I'm not going to do any spoilers, um, but basically there is a girl who has died in the town and an inspector calls and he talks them he talks to each of them individually and what it's about is showing how the different generations start to take on responsibility or awareness or not as to how they are affecting society whether they're perpetrating society so continuing society to to be the way it is or whether they're actually finding a way to make it better for everybody and it took me a while but once I kind of saw this through I kind of went okay so that is actually how we are teaching a moral fiber in our schools yeah I was going to say one of the things that again I think we could level that we miss is the prominence of literature in our lives is not as it once would have been again if we talk about mythology and literature and storytelling it's how we learn how to be human um, it's how we explore these different ideas like the one you were just propagating there and then having those discussions but those that isn't it doesn't occupy the same space in our world as it once did in terms of its importance so you get a little bit of it like I'm amazed at how very little like my kids had to read and I start kicking out all the classics that I was made to read they're like what what is that it's like it's like what what do what you guys actually do in school <laughs> you know it's like what are you what are you doing um and I think about all the poems and things I had to memorize and stuff like that. But anyway, it's just, you know, again, where it sits in our world is not quite there, but what have we replaced it with? I know we got movies and stuff, um, but we don't. And, and you know, I used to think, and probably because I was, um, you know, big in my books and things like that, almost um, put movies on the next tier down with an actuality, if you approach movies in the same way that you approach written literature, it's, it's the same effect. I got a book over here called um, Every, Everything is Bad is Good for You. And when I read that, I was thinking, you know what, if you actually sit down and you critically watch TV, there's loads in there. Like I was watching Breaking Bad, and I was thinking, okay, well, what's the story... You know, what's the moral lessons in it? Because you watch the arc of a guy who wants, you know, he's dying of cancer. I don't know if you've seen it. And he wants to provide for his family because he has a, a, a son that has a disability. And then, you know, his wife has, a, they got a young daughter and he's dying of cancer, basically. He wants to provide. So he takes a step into the dark side and starts selling crystal meth. But he was only going to do a little bit of it to make, you know, because he's, well, from him it was like, okay, well, there's people buying and selling this stuff anyway i'm dying if i die and they had loads of bills and things like that then my family's going to be destroyed so his reasoning for doing it was to provide for his family and um, so and you, again so you can so now they got discussions is that good is that a good thing he wanted to provide for his family is it a bad thing because he's doing drugs um, you know, drugs is a big part of the, of our society, the money-making way. What he's looking at is our, there's this whole world of, you know, drugs that say, I'm going to dip in and dip out 
and then my family isn't going to be destitute when I go. So, okay, so then, you know, there's a moral dilemma there and which one's the higher good. But then you watch his transformation as he then is a guy, we're just talking about power. Um, you know, he was a powerful guy because he's really smart and he was part of this three people who had this company, chemical company, whatever they started. He, again, decision, decided to teach high school instead so that he could be with his family and raise his kids. The other two go on to be super successful and the company's worth billions or multiple millions. And so he's always envious of that because he was in that world. Um, and he's got a brother-in-law that looks down on him because he's just a weak chemistry teacher. So when he gets into this drug world, things spins out of control, but then he gets the taste of power. Mm. And now we've got the story of, you know, a little bit of power, you know, um, who was a, my guy, Machiavelli, you know, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, so you know, then you're watching him get taste of power. Now suddenly he's not powerless and, and then he's getting power and then he becomes a man. He's like, oh, yeah, he's got all this power. But because he's a drug dealer, of course, he can't just say, oh, I'm a drug dealer. So the other thing is his ego. <laughs> so all these forces, because he wants, you know, he's got a brother-in-law that looks down on him and chasing after this bad guy and doesn't realize the bad guy's sitting right across from his table. Um, and he, he's desperate to, you know, look how powerful I am. And he can't even let anybody know. So, you know, he's got that whole dynamic. He finally has power, but he can't let anybody know the power that he has. Um, and so, yes, when you start to watch more critically watching movies or the new way that TVs are, TV programs are made now, they have a much longer arc than um, they would have done a few years ago. Um, there's lots to be learned in them. But you said the, criti- the thing there that's the crucial bit is to critically watch this. Critically watch them, have a discussion about them. So there isn't mindless TV, actually. Movies aren't bad. TV is not bad. Um, if we just sit and consume them mindlessly, then, okay, they're not doing anything for us. But if you grasp the underlying mythology, the forces, the moral dilemmas, and all the things that kind of come out there, they make for great touch points for having, like we do with this podcast, have these conversations to explore where we are in our thinking. I don't even know if we actually... You know, you didn't ask me what I think a man should be, but I was trying to get out of you what you think a man, you know, should be. Um, you know, well, well, since I've thrown it out there, you know, my concept of man is, yeah, yeah is um, leader, provider, protector, um, you know, stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. So not just, you know, protector of, women but for those who are who don't who aren't strong enough to stand up for themselves so you've got that obligation to to do or that's my concept of that obligation to do um have a sense of right and wrong although my sort of philosophical side of me knows that that's that there is no absolute well my belief is there's no absolute right or wrong um, so I'm not an absolutist, but, you know, you got to pick and choose your ground and then pick and choose your ground and walk it, whatever that's going to be. Um, 
training again all these other things that you know I guess I would say goes into the maleness man stuff you know and we don't have to cry because that's just wimpy and don't have to be showing all our emotions all over the place again you know we gotta go do man stuff um no, be respectful you... towards like you I have you have you ever heard me curse? No, I don't uh no, I don't think I have. No, because I was raised that you don't curse in front of women. So I, I don't use foul language in front of women. Even though you know the women around me will be cursing like sailors, I still can't bring myself to use bad language in front of a woman and it's just a thing that was that was just my and again that's just thing from my upbringing the mom's like no it's you know respect for her it was disrespectful to curse in front of women so for me respect to women means you know my equation to that is you don't use foul language in front of women because it's disrespectful but anyway that's a but that's again conceptually here's all the things i think okay this is you know this is the model makeup of you know the model model man. So um yeah and no. <laughs> well, yeah, no, exactly. Because you know, if I and and I am I'm drawn to what I would call strong men. So I like a man who is a leader, so long as he knows that when I want to do some leading, there's space for me as well. And, um, and a smart man always lets a woman think she's right. And could be in charge. Absolutely. And that's, fact, but, and you can only do that if you're securing your manhood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I read something the other day or listened to something and it was, uh, you know, the, the, the trick is to, oh, a woman is always right. It was a guy called John Wineland. I, have you ever come across John Wineland? I've seen some of his stuff, yeah. Oh, right. So I think he has a lot of really interesting things in terms of actually in terms of being a man now he talks a lot about masculinity and femininity um and and it's all about stepping into your power as a man or as a woman going back to to what we were saying but he was basically saying you know women you are nearly always right however just don't tell us how to do something exactly <laughs> exactly and I, and he said that and i just went oh of course kind of thing that is that's the secret right there to a happy marriage. In fact, for me, is don't tell, ask. Because when I get told, then I just won't do it out of Which is principle. interesting. Because, and so <laughs> but what I'll is, do anything you ask me to do. But you sound, when I think, listen to you more, you sound like you're in what I would call more, much more of a traditional marriage. Um, because I presume your wife is happy with you as the leader, the provider, the protector, and so on and so forth. No, because I, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I do, I'm not in that, I'm not overtly that way. I don't know if that may be coming across that way, but I, like, basically, anything domestic is not my, this is her kingdom. I just occupy space here. I don't care what the color of the walls are, how the furniture is arranged, what we have for dinner, anything that happens when I this in between these walls, I'm not in charge of. It's, it's all her world. And my world is outside across the moat <laughs> when I'm out slaying demons and dragons and stuff like that. But I have no, 
I make no demands inside of these walls. I'm just a I'm just a servant in here. <laughs> so, um, so servants being asked, not told. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I you know I I think I have to go back to almost to to, to one of my original points, which is it is about each individual, um, and and I know we've kind of ended up talking very much about male-female relationships because clearly you and I are both male-female and Mm. are in heterosexual relationships um I don't know enough about gay partnerships so this is an assumption um but I assume that there is a balance of that sort of masculinity and femininity and it's not about any one partner whatever sex you are whatever gender you are I think is the the right term um to be feminine and for one you know the other partner whatever gender you are to be masculine it is about basically what is my energy here what do I need to bring to this situation um what are those skills what is that feeling can you pause for there for just a second because I like (laughs) that well no because the energy bit now now how how do you because what it made me think of and you're right we're masculine and feminine right as you say the energies um now and I'm then I'm what it made me think of then as you were saying that is that okay well naturally you have more masculine I mean you're a male basically I don't know what that means and then you're a female so there's a nature that says partly one of those energies is probably going to be easier for you to do than the other just by nature of being male and female but you completely by being human have the ability to shift those energies um, at any given point but you either the balance of nature gives you a leg up um, on one side or the other of those things based off of well just purely being male or female so yes I guess that is what I'm saying um I always think that the uh and and we know I'm not a scientist but I always think that the perfect balance would be because I'm female, for me to have 51% sort of feminine energy and 49% masculine energy. And I kind of think that would work really well. Um, When I look back, I kind of was very clear that in my 20s and 30s, I would say I had a lot more masculine energy. Um, But when you say masculine energy, what do you actually mean by that? Uh, what is a, what is masculine energy? Egotistical. Um, not that I was necessarily that egotistical, but it was more. I was more go-getting. So actually, a bit, you know, like you, it was more that I had a, a provider mentality. I had to be out there. I was independent. It was much more about being independent. Got into my forties, and clearly by that point had two children. And what is a feminine energy? And that was. And and this is the interesting thing because the feminine energy is now changing yet again. Hmm. But, but what it, what is feminine energy? So it's it it depends. Before now, what I would have said is the feminine energy is the the I would call it a more gentle energy. It's a more softer energy. So is um, that nurturer, strong, more nurturer, um, easier to show care, more empathetic. But, uh yes i guess to to be that kind of clear however now moving into my 50s i get that 
feminine energy is changing yet again. So this probably picks up on, we, we've talked before, but about archetypes and actually that difference between kind of the, the younger woman um, and whatever terminology you might put with that, moving into what some people might term the queen energy or the wise woman energy, um, or it's it's that there is there's a I, I always think of it as a regal quality actually, but it is about that being comfortable in your own skin, and again whether you're male or female, I, I don't think it particularly matters, but there is a difference. Well, actually, there probably is a male energy as well. Sorry, I was just sort of starting to think that one through. Um, but my feminine energy before kind of, you know, choosing to get married had the opportunity to be much more, I don't know, um, I was going to say much more sexual, I suppose. But I, that doesn't prevent me from being like that now. It's just that I don't, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly like that then anyway, but I'm, you know, it's kind of how do I, how do I be feminine in a way that isn't perceived as weak? And that's probably similar yeah. with men as well. And maybe this is the thing, I think, and, and maybe the discussions that we have to have more of in a greater society is, is be, being clear what that energy is so feminine what the hell is being feminine mean what are the qualities of being I don't feminine to be looked after just because i'm a woman yeah but see that's just it because you're a woman means you have to be looked at but is that feminine what's feminine so how is that how is being looked after feminine as in a male needs to be looked after but in a male way women need to be looked after in a female way our way of being looked after will be different but we both still need to be looked after so what are the qualities of being feminine and what are the qualities of being masculine mm. um, i think we need to do some more work on that i do because um, I, I would like to unpick feminine means and here's all the qualities of femininity here's all the qualities of masculinity um, so if that sounds good uh, I have no idea that we'll get anywhere with it because I think it is so complex. Um, but we can talk more about also what weakness is versus vulnerability. And uh, Brené Brown is a big proponent of the... So when you're walking down the street and you see another woman, what? how are you evaluating that woman? That's a great question. Um generally that's <laughs> like oh I've got to really think about this um so I am very aware that I I do pick up on things as in so my subconscious picks up on things and I am very aware of the media and the media talking about well not even necessarily these days talking about an attractive woman um and what that what kick, kick, kick out the quality where do you what's your thoughts too many words what's your thoughts in a what podcast yeah. So my thoughts would generally be... When you see another woman. If, if my thought is further than... You know, if it's outside of myself, because quite often if I'm walking, I'm walking 
for a purpose, for a reason. Right, let me help you out here. Let me tell you mine. When I see another guy, okay, can I kick this guy's ass? That's it. That's my question. Okay, so no. Yeah. So, so that's, that's not me that, at all. That's what I, when I see another guy, that's the first thing that I evaluate. Can I kick his ass or not? Then I can start look beyond other things. Where when, did you get that? Is that from... Is is was that from the army? Was no, that's that... just man stuff. That's just this is what I'm giving you the inner workings of my head. It's like, okay, can I kick his ass or not? <laughs> so I just need to you know, once we establish that. Whereas um, generally, if I'm honest, what I'm looking, you know, if if I'm actually taking in somebody else, I'm going, oh, that's a nice, that's a nice outfit, or I like the way she's put those colors together, yeah. and that's the kind of thing that I, I see. Do. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm gonna. Try. I wonder where she got that jacket from. <laughs> <laughs> See now, now you're getting to it, and then when, and and women, you can already guess. My first thing is, would I sleep with this woman? Is my f- way to look at it, and then I go from there. Those <laughs> are my two starting points when I meet another human beings out in the in the world. Wow! <laughs> and then it just starts. That's the starting. Spot. Now, and, and I, I would like to just qualify. So walking down the street is one thing. Um, it doesn't matter. Walking down the street, driving in the car, going to the grocery store. If, if I may. Uh, they come uh, to my door, knock on the door. <laughs> no, see, so so I don't go there. But what I mean is if I'm if I'm in an office, then it is about great. What's everybody got to bring to the party? So, so actually, that's I know it's taken me a very long time to get there and slightly thrown by semantics, um, but it is. It's about what are people bringing to this party, you know, because I, I just I, I genuinely love people from what they how they think and how they act and how so they contribute. That's and how my next level up. My base level is just, as I said, those two things. Then I come up to the, okay, well, who's this person as a human being? And are they cool or they're not cool? Do I get to know them? What do they bring? But my very animal instinct level, at my animal instinct primal level, those are my two things. Yeah, okay. But, I, I'm yeah. kind of trying to drop into that. So in which point... I guess mine would be, can I trust this person? All right, there we go. There you go. Yeah, okay. Now we get into <laughs> it. <laughs> so you, we, we've kind of strayed off a little bit, and there was a couple of things I wanted to, to share. Um, in terms of, of looking at, at ritual passage or uh, rites of passage generally, there was a classic anthropological work by um, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Van Gennep, I think. And this was written back in 1909. Um, and Van Gennep spoke 18 languages. So nice. I think that's phenomenal. So he studied many cultures. Now, what he noted was a tripartite sequence in ritual observation. Um, so, uh, sorry, in ritual observance. So, i.e., every ritual that he saw across all of these cultures essentially had three parts. There was a separation, uh, and I haven't read the book. I've just kind of mm. uh, sort of taken that top line. But the separation is presumably the separating from what was to what you are becoming. The transition, which is obviously that, and and, and this is me, my interpretation, as I say, the transitioning from what you were to what you're, you are going to be. And then the incorporation, which for me I kind of took to be um, embedding that, integrating what you've learned, which actually then, and I sort of, I thought about it and I thought, well, absolutely, we can look at this from a, you know, a preparing people for manhood or marriage kind of stage. Um, 
it also made me think actually on a very uh, a much more regular basis when people go on training courses so when I was employed as a manager and I would have my teams you know it would become apparent that somebody would benefit from training in an area and it was always my goal with each individual to sit down with them before they went off on, on their training to say right you know kind of a, what do you want to get from this training what do you want to get from it personally what do you want to get from it professionally you know how do you want it to change your life in some way and so even if that was only a 10 minute conversation it would be enough for them to set up an intention and, and to move forward they'd obviously go on the training um which would give them the skills, the knowledge, the experience, whatever it was that there was needed. And then when they came back, after a, you know, it would be a, a sort of, a, I say after a while, it would depend on what the training was, but to sit down with them and say, right, what did you learn? How are you incorporating that? How's that going? What did you want to do that you haven't done? And so this ritual observance, actually, you can apply in our everyday life, as well as sort of in the, the bigger picture of things or, or things that are more um unique should we say yeah and i think that's um i don't know if you're familiar with joseph campbell's work in the hero's journey um and he noticed that across all of you know different cultures and it's those same stages as you're saying so you can look at um the ritual so the first part is the ordinary world kind of where you are now how things are that call to adventure which is the call to to change um, then there's the crossing of the threshold. So you, you accept that call. You accept, okay, things have to change. And you go and they can map the classroom or anything on top of this. Movies are mapped on top of this. Then you have that period of the trials. This is where, you know, you're going to be tested. This is where, you know, you don't know everything. And you bring in, you know, you you cut off from your ordinary place because you're in this, this place of the unknown, basically. So you have the trials. Um, you're generally meant, meet your mentor on there who kind of helps you along this way and then you've got that place where you've got to go into the belly of the whale so you would be familiar with that story from the old testament mm-hmm. um, or go into the cave but you know that's the time where as an individual you've had your friends your mentors helped you as much as they can but you have to go into the belly of the whale alone to face yourself and your own fears and all of that sort of stuff um, if you survive that trial, then you come out and you get the elixir, the treasure. Um, but you got to make it back. So there's a return back to a homeward bound. And not everybody makes it back, but that's the next, that's the last part of it. Well, that's not the last part, but that's it, homeward bound. And then there's what you've just kind of said, there's the rebirth. So now you've gone through the ritual, you've got the elixir, you've come back and there's the rebirth sort of champions return and you're now what do you bring back to the ordinary world with you having gone on this this journey and we do many of these journeys every day bigger picture life smaller life um yeah i think we better get ready to call it an episode considering we are an hour and 40 minutes into this gig no. <laughs> yeah. yeah i forgot to see what time we started because yeah. normally i keep an eye on that <laughs> yeah, no man we're still in it but it was a big topic okay. it's a good topic well, in terms well, it of, is. Um, but that- i would like to do and, and whether we do some kind of side project or we do some 
some stuff in the forums or groups or we run some kind of workshop, I would really like to explore what is femininity, what is masculinity? Like, really, what are those things? And what's the model of either of them? And then what's the bridge between the two? That sounds really good. Can I just share before we finish? Because, you know, I do think there might be somebody listening to this if they've listened this long that says about rites of passage and sort of says, well, you haven't really talked specifically about anything in, in the modern world. Um, and obviously there are still many religions and many groups who do mm. still have rites of passage that they take people through. Um, you asked right at the very beginning about my own boys. So when our eldest turned 14, we asked a handful of our close friends uh, who are male to write down words of wisdom to share with him on his birthday. And it was brilliant. They all came through in very different ways. Uh, we had a poem that was written in a card. We had a, a letter that was on the side of A4. We had a letter that was three pages long, uh, handwritten. Uh, we had someone who made it into um, a, just a, a beautiful print of five key points. They were really, really interesting. Um, and so we did that when he was 14. And then when he turned 17 this year, we asked uh, several of our female friends to do the same. And we didn't want to make it anything greater than that. We didn't want to, we were, we'd originally thought about maybe having, going out for a meal um, where he could discuss with the people around the table and kind of have a bit of that, um, almost that, that tribal feel, if you like, or that community feel that we talked about. But that isn't right for him yet. But that is something that we will probably do when he is older, when it's the right time for him. And similarly, we've done the same with our, our younger son. So, um, and we will be doing something the same, but we will be doing it again in the time that's right for him and their needs. So that was one of the things that we did. And, and those words of wisdom that came in were all very different, written very differently, very different focuses, um, which allowed us to have conversations again with our own children, but with different people's perspectives and points of view. And that was I think really useful and always being clear for the children that it's about them to find what's right for them. Cool. Very good. We need to do more of that as a tribe, but we don't necessarily, but we should. Okay. Um, it's been interesting. It's good. Um, I like this idea. I like this idea, the man and the woman. And then <laughs> what, you know, yeah. How do we go forward? I guess in terms of a new mythologies. We'll have to do an episode on mythic imagination because I've got some more specific stuff to talk about in terms of mythology and how to use it to your advantage in everyday real life. Should we do that next? Uh, we could do. Yeah, let's do that next because I think the, the, the feminine masculine thing, I think that's such a big, broad topic and as you're right I think that would lend itself to a discussion um, when we've got people wanting to join in with that 
Uh, and as you say, maybe we can put on some kind of workshop because actually I think that would be really, really fabulous. Or, you know, what we could do on the femininity mountain. Your homework could be to come back and tell me what femininity is to school me. And I can school you on masculinity and what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See? So, but next week, however, mythic imagination and how to use it. You said it beautifully then. I can't remember exactly what you said. I'm sorry, it's on the tape. How to use it to your advantage. Yeah. No, that's cool. Great. Yes, that's what we'll do next week. All right.